Jeremiah chapter 2 this morning. Jeremiah chapter 2. Still not, well, they're, they're working on it. I'm on a different pack this morning. Okay, they got it. I'm, I'm on a different pack, so we're having to adjust as we go. Am I not plugged in good, John? Is that maybe it? We're okay. All right. All right, good deal. Who moved? That's the title of the message. That's the question we're going to answer this morning. We're actually going to answer that fairly soon in the sermon. As a matter of fact, y'all probably already know the answer. We're going to look at Is that me rattling? Sorry, I'm self-conscious about it because we, we changed something before the service, so now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about it. All right, uh, we're going to look at that this morning, but first we need to look at our memory verse, and I didn't put any blank, I didn't put the one with the blanks in it. Yeah, but it's in the announcements, though, it's not in the, uh, there's a blank slide, I just forgot to put it in for the sermon. Ha ha, we get to cheat one more week. Oh, man. Let me get my cheat card out because... No, I'm I'm putting in the blanks in my head first. Okay. All right. So the person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8. 7 and 8. Yeah, those were fairly easy ones. I missed the first word. There it is. Okay. Or I missed the first blank. All right. Jeremiah chapter 2, we're looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. This message was very likely preached, we don't know uh, for a fact, but it was very likely preached during the reign of Josiah. Remember, back in chapter 1, it says that he, Jeremiah, preached during the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, until uh, Zedekiah, son of uh, son of Josiah, king of Judah. And he started, though, when Josiah was king. Um, We'll talk about this kind of as we work through the book of Jeremiah, but the book is divided up into sections. The first 35, I think, chapters, thereabout, are sermons uh, that he preached, that Jeremiah preached, over the course of a number of years. And then... In, during the reign of, I believe it was Jehoiakim, I'm going to look and be sure just because, you know, somebody will call me out. Yep, Jehoiakim. Um, God told him to write it down. Write down all these things you've been preaching. Hopefully he had notes so he could go back and, and look at his sermons. But he may not have. Doesn't matter. God controlled it all. So after... A, 20 years or so-ish, maybe more, maybe less, of preaching, God says, write all these down and take them to the king, and he does. So what we have in chapter 36 is the compilation of, or the, the act of compiling, verses, uh, chapters 1 through 35, all these sermons. They 
may or may not be in chronological order. They, they may or may not be in the order he preached them, chronologically, or, to, uh, or, or um, compiled according to when the kings were. It, 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 there's, no, there's not a lot of evidence of, of what was going on at the time. Bits and pieces you see, but just as, a, as far as a clear timeline, it's not there. But we think this one was preached early uh, in the reign of Josiah, maybe before his reform began. That's when, uh, about when Je- Jeremiah was called, about the time that, or a little before, Josiah's reforms began, and he began to cleanse the temple and all those things. The, this, this sermon may have been preached during the reform itself, but if so, it was very early. It appears to be very early. Well, why is that important? Well, there's a couple of things we could glean from, from the timing, uh, depending on when it is. Um, first, if it's, if it's before the reform, and, but even actually during the reform, God is showing them in this message, because this is a harsh message, harsh message. This is y'all doing wrong. Well, if it's during reform, things are getting better, right? Even if it's before reform, God knows that the reform is coming. Well, a few things here. God is showing them that he knew the people would be half-hearted. And as soon as there was a new leader, as soon as Josiah died they'd turn away again. So it could very well be a warning of, yes, you may be changing some things, and it may look really good on the surface, but make sure this is a true heart change and not just redecorating. Well, another uh, potential message based on the timing is that God is showing them a constant reminder of why reform was even necessary. Why are we having to do this hard stuff? Well, God says, let me remind you where you were, what you did. This is why we're having to do this. Possibly, God is showing them that even during reform, there can be temptation away from it, which is kind of a blend of these previous two reasons. Either the reform is too hard or... It takes too long, or it's too expensive, or too uncomfortable, or something. Too something that they don't really like. God is saying, here's what you need to know about yourself right now. Where you are, whether it's right before the reform happens with Josiah, right after it starts, it doesn't matter. Here's what you need to know about yourself. And that leads to our big idea this morning. When our world is turned upside down and God seems nowhere near, we moved, he didn't. I just answered the question. Told you it'd be early. We moved, he didn't. And Jeremiah shows us that. The the, the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah makes that clear. Read with me chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. I remember the loyalty of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. 
Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it found themselves guilty. Disaster came on them. This is the Lord's declaration. Hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob, and all families of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me, followed worthless idols, and became worthless themselves? They stopped asking, where is the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, through a land of drought and darkness, a land no one traveled through and where no one lived? I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty. But after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priests quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts in the law no longer knew me, and the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless idols. Therefore, I will bring a case against you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will bring a case against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and take a look. Send someone to Kedar and consider carefully. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? But they were not gods. Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Be appalled at this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves. Cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. When our world is turned upside down and God seems nowhere near, we moved. He didn't. Three times in verses 1 through 3, Jeremiah says, The word of the Lord. We are told these are God's words. But as I was reading, let's look at some more. Uh, Verse 4, hear the word of the Lord. Says it again. Verse 5, this is what the Lord says. Keep going. I'm looking through these. I I wanted to mark them with my pen as I was going, but I didn't. Verse 9, this is the Lord's declaration. Tell me if I skipped one. Verse 12, this is the Lord's declaration. Who's talking? It ain't Jeremiah. They want to get mad at Jeremiah. They do get mad at Jeremiah. Jeremiah uh, gets run off, actually gets kidnapped and, and taken away 40 years Later, after preaching messages that nobody listened to, or or they just didn't like, they didn't heed. But every time, this is the word of the Lord. Three times in in verses 1 through 3, uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, just in these 13 verses, seven times, the Lord said. Of course, we can't get away from that fact. Point number one on the passage, the people followed God. The Lord said they followed him. They, 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 he, my, my bride, you, you, you loved me. You, you were loyal to me. You followed me in the wilderness. You know, pillar of flame uh, by night, pillar of smoke during the day. 
I'm saying this, not Jeremiah. See, Jeremiah's authority, the preacher's authority, comes from the calling from God and God's words that he speaks, not from himself. Should Jeremiah have gotten up and said, I've got a message for you, well, that's, that's the wrong way to go about it. Jeremiah's message was God's message, God's words. And God says to them, you had a true devotion to me. It was real at one point. It was like, a, 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 like newlyweds. You loved me, I loved you. You followed me like you were supposed to. I gave you the land. You were the first fruits of the harvest. We remember, we know that Israel was not the goal. A missionary society was the goal. A missionary country was the goal. They were supposed to be the first fruits of the continuing harvest of people turning to the Lord. But instead, the Jews turned inward, Israel turned inward... And, and when they turned inward, instead of, it, it created sort of a, a, a vacuum. Instead of going out and influencing the world, when they fo- focused inwardly, it pulled the world in. And they began to worship other gods. But the beginning, they followed him. Now, the, the wilderness wasn't good. The wilderness was 40 years of wandering. It was hard. It was a time when the old people, older people, were intentionally being died off. So the ones who did not disobey God when it, earlier, when they could have gone into the promised land, they could go in and a whole new generation would take the promised land. So it was then even a form of judgment and cleansing, but they were faithful mainly. They still sinned, just like we still sin, but we can remain faithful. God remained completely faithful, totally faithful. He never left them. He never walked away from them. He never moved. And because they were faithful, because of this relationship, because this was their land that he had given them, verse 3 says, all who ate of it the, the first fruits who ate of Israel, that's what he said, all who came in and took part of Israel found themselves guilty. Disaster came on them. God protected them. They followed him. God protected them. You are my people. And if anybody messed with you, they messed with me. I was the one who protected you. Well, that sets us up. <laughs> that sets us up for the fact that he's going to stop protecting them. That's Jeremiah's message for 40 years. The end is coming. Get ready. Just wait. You have not followed me the way you were supposed to. The end is coming. I have protected you all this time. But the day is coming when I no longer will. The people followed God for a while. But then, number two, the people followed idols. Verses 4 through 7 begin that description. He begins it again. Hear the word of the Lord, 
verse 5, this is what the Lord says, y'all, this is not Jeremiah picking on you. This is me telling Jeremiah what to say about you. You don't want to hear the message? Straighten up. You followed idols. What, what fault did your fathers find with me? This is a, a courtroom scene is how God does it here. He, he puts himself on trial, basically, and, and says, call some witnesses. Call the, the, your fathers. What, what did they see in me? What did I do to make them turn away from me? Was I faithless? Oh, now they would want to say that he was. Oh, you, in this case, we, you know, well, remember AI? We, we, you didn't let us win at AI. Whose fault was that? Whose disobedience was that? Not God's. Who was faithful, faithless in that case? Not God. Well, what about all these other times? Yeah, and let's look at all those other times. Who, who moved? God says. And every time, the answer is Israel. Had God changed over those years? I am the Lord. I do not change, he says. The answer is no. He hadn't moved. He hadn't changed what he said. He hadn't changed his calling, uh, their calling that he gave them. He had not said, all right, never mind. You don't have to follow me faithfully. You don't have to worship me faithfully. You don't have to be a missionary people to the world around you. Just whatever you want is fine. He never said that. But that was the track they took. And he says, they went so far from me, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. I've, I've quoted slash paraphrased the verse. Isaiah says it absolutely the best, and, and I've, I've told you this before. Uh, Isaiah talks about, y'all go out and you, you cut down a tree, and, and you chop up that tree, and you take some of the wood, and, and you build something with, you know, a chair or a table or whatever, with, and then you take some of that wood, and you build a fire with it, and you take some of that wood, and, and you do something else with it, and then you take some of that wood, and you carve an idol out of it, and you stick it on your mantelpiece, and you worship it. The same dadgum tree that you burned and you used to make a chair out of, you worship. That's a worthless idol. I love the picture of us creating our gods out of the stuff that we use and throw away. That's what Jeremiah is saying from the Lord that they did. You took these worthless idols and then you became worthless. Now... Does that mean God no longer values those people? Clearly not. He's doing everything he can to turn them back. And eventually, he will send his own son to die for them. There, we have extreme value to God. But as far as use, uh, usefulness, they became worthless. They were no longer what... He called them to be. You were useless as far as influencing the countries around you because you instead let them influence you. You chased their idols. You took on their gods, which he says later were no gods at all. You have done these things. You have left 
me. Y'all, we become what we worship. We become like what we worship. So when Israel, the, their fathers, as he says, began to worship worthless idols, they became worthless. If, if it is no better, if the idol that they worshipped was no better than this carved piece of wood that was used for a fire, and once it's used in the fire, you're done with it. It's not much use after that. That's, that was Israel. But if we're worshipping God, if they were following God, and they were becoming like what they worshipped, we, they would become more and more like Him. But they didn't. And then they stopped asking, where is the Lord? There's a lot in that question. Implicit to this question is that they at one point recognized, I believe, their sin and their wandering. They knew they, they, they had left him. They're the, the kid at, at the store that wanders this direction while mama and daddy walked that way and the two didn't realize it. And then the kid realizes, oh, they're not with me anymore. Where'd they go? Where are my parents? Now, eventually that child gets old enough, he no longer asks that question, right? As a matter of fact, it was part of the goal. Part of the, re thankfully, I don't know where my parents are. I don't want to know where they are. For a while, the people asked, hold on, y'all. Where's the Lord? We have uh, we've gotten away from him. But over time, they no longer asked, where is the Lord? Didn't matter. They weren't interested in staying with him. Probably, to begin with, they just didn't realize he was no longer there. Then they began to think they didn't need him. And then they, began to, they, they became the teenager that stuck, snuck out at night, trying to get away from him. They no longer asked, where, the, where is the Lord? They didn't care that he was not with them anymore. Nobody accidentally moves toward holiness. We don't accidentally move toward the Lord. A nation or a church doesn't accidentally become more faithful. We drift away from God. We get to the point where we no longer ask, where is the Lord, because it doesn't matter. They had become, we read in chapter 5, and you should have read this week in chapter 5, fat and sleek. I would have said, and actually had in my notes, fat and happy. But I decided to use God's words. Fat and sleek, chapter 5, verse 28. And they turned from God. What happened? We'll just read a, a, the verse or two up. You followed me in the wilderness, in the land not sown, then you came into this wonderful place, this holy land. You, you, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it, it, it's a little further down, not further up. 
I brought you, verse 7, to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty. You came from the land of drought and darkness and ravines and awfulness. And I gave you this wonderful place. And you got there. And once you got there, you quit asking, where is the Lord? Because you didn't need him. You were comfortable. You were happy. You were fat and sleek. You began to focus on your comfort and your wealth. See, the people got what they wanted from God and then left God. And learned that if they made alliances with other countries, if they let down their standards, if they followed other gods, they could get more comfort and wealth. Because God didn't want them to have as much good stuff as these other gods wanted them to have. Those other gods being themselves. That was their impression, that God was holding them back somehow, not giving them everything they wanted or needed, because their focus was on themselves, their comfort, their wealth. So they got what they wanted. It says in verse 7, After you entered, you defiled my land, you made my inheritance detestable. But it wasn't just the people that left him. It wasn't just the, the run-of-the-mill Israelites. It wasn't just kings and princes and governmental leaders. Number three, the priests followed idols. Verse eight, the priests quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts in the law no longer knew me. And the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless idols. I think this is far more disheartening than even the fathers, the people leaving. The religious leaders didn't miss when God was gone. The people that were supposed to be teaching the people the ones, the leaders who are supposed to be teaching the people how to follow God got so far off track themselves that they didn't realize when God was no longer in front of them. And then when they didn't real or when they did realize it, they didn't care either. They no longer asked, Where is the Lord? At one time they had to have known. Again, we, we, they're asking, it implies that they asked the question at some point, where is the Lord? But now they're not. They recognized at one time that, that they were leading poorly, that they weren't teaching properly, or that the people were straying. But then after a while... They no longer asked the question, and according to God himself, they wouldn't know God if they saw him. The experts of the law no longer knew me. That's tough. The ones who should know me the best, when I showed up and said, guys, hello, remember me? They're all like, ah, gosh, y'all know this fella? Hey, 
It's not ringing a bell. The people who were supposed to teach them what was right gave up on teaching them what was right. But they didn't just give up on teaching them what was right. They taught them what was wrong. I mean, there's, there's a middle ground. There's a, there's a fluff in the middle that a preacher can preach that, that isn't what God tells them to and, and isn't other gods, but it's just worthless, as he says a few verses back. Doesn't do anything. It's, it's, it's meringue. Yeah, cast slobber is what one guy I knew called meringue. It, it is, it, there's v- little to no flavor. If there's not enough sugar in it, there's no flavor. It's just there. That's, the, the pie is the good stuff. So, so when it's a, a, a lemon meringue pie, let's just make it a lemon-lemon pie. Get rid of the meringue, double the lemon, and yay. So there's this preaching of meringue that doesn't, it hits your tongue, it's gone, you don't really remember it. But that's not what these guys were doing. I, that, that's the lukewarm that, that they were teaching a message that wasn't God's. The prophets prophesied by Baal. The prophets were bringing in messages to the church from other gods, the the temple. We'll read in chapters 36 and, and following that when God's message was finally preached by Jeremiah, it was rejected. Jehoiakim literally burned the scrolls that Jeremiah wrote his sermons on. The preacher was harassed, ridiculed, ignored, lied about, and eventually fired. Well, arrested. And then kidnapped and hauled off to Egypt. When God's true word was spoken, they got mad. Because they wanted either the meringue, or in this case, Baal's, not God's, which means the gods were themselves. Excuse me, sir, could you please preach my message to me that makes me feel good about myself and my desires? And that's what the priests did. Now, one didn't necessarily cause the other, meaning the, the fathers asking, where is the Lord? Are no longer asking, where is the Lord? And the leaders no longer asking, where is the Lord? He's, he is... Uh, not saying that one led to this, the fathers led to the le- religious leaders, or the religious leaders led to the fathers not asking the question. It, it could have been simultaneous. Actually, that's probably what it was. It was a, a slow drift throughout the country. But what we see is that neither offered corrective of the other. But the primary responsibility lies on the leaders, They share the greater burden. The preachers, the pastors of the church, the teachers in the church, they share the burden. It's why Paul says, I think it was Paul, don't 
don't want to be a teacher. Because if you do, and you teach wrongly, that will be held against you. Everything I say from the pulpit is, is written down. I mean, there are people that watch my sermons just so they can find things wrong with them. But, but God records everything I say so that I get to hear one day, yeah, this was good, this was good, this was not. It is the religious leader's responsibility, the burden to lead, to correct, to change. The people are almost expected to push back some. The leaders should know and teach better regardless of what the people want to hear. The people might want meringue or even sermons from other gods, but that should not matter to the leader, to the religious leader, to the preacher. I was thinking this morning, we have got now 12 weeks of Jeremiah. You know what that is? That is 12 sermons of judgment, doom, and gloom. It's going to be a great summer. I was joking to uh, uh, one of the, the, the giant cow leaders that was here this past week. They've obviously gone on to New Orleans. He asked me if well, what I was preaching this week. I said, we're, we're still in Jeremiah. We'll be for a few weeks. And I said, I'm, I'm preaching on the guy that, that preached for 40 years, saw no uh, change from the people, and eventually they got rid of him. I said, we'll see what happens in September. Because I'm going to be preaching 12 messages of repent, change, and if you don't, destruction. And we'll decide in September what the future holds. didn't matter what the people wanted to hear. It was what they needed to hear. Now, they didn't ask the question. They stopped asking, where is the Lord, in verse 6. And they stopped asking, where is the Lord, in verse 8. But let's ask, where is the Lord? He's right where he's always been. Verses 9 through 13, number 4, God remained fixed. God never moved. The people moved, God didn't. Therefore, I will bring a case against you again. So we're, still in, we're back to that courtroom scene, except it's not him on trial anymore. It's the people. This is the Lord's declaration. I'll bring the uh, case against you. Look around. Nobody, no country has ever exchanged their gods. They may drift. They may not follow uh, like they're supposed to. They will sin against their gods. But he says, no country has ever had these gods and said, never mind. We want this whole new set. Look around, doesn't happen, he says, has not happened at least to that point. Go wherever you want to. They weren't gods at all. They exchanged them for because they're you. you. You exchanged God for yourself. Yet that's what they've done. They've exchanged their glory for useless idols. Be appalled 
shocked, utterly desolated. Verse 13. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me. The people moved. God didn't. You don't abandon something that left you. That is called being abandoned. God says, you abandoned me. Their leaving was was unparalleled. Certainly at this time, as he said, look around, does not happen. Why did they leave? Well, because God requires faithfulness. God requires us to be obedient. God requires us to live according to his standards. And you know what? It's hard. And it's expensive. And it takes too long. And it just looks too dadgum much like taking up a cross. And so they don't. The truth is, idols, especially idols of our own making, which is what idols are, maybe just somebody else made them, but if we make the idol, you know what kind of God I'm going to make? I'm going to make one that is very easy to please. And I'm going to make one that very obviously pleases me. The God I create is going to be a God that is pretty happy with most everything I do and doesn't fuss at me much, lets me do all the things I like. But if tomorrow my tastes change, lo and behold, my God changes too because I'm the God. And that's what they did. It's very easy to not have to sacrifice our comfort, our preferences, our laziness, our consumerism. See, me as a God, he doesn't doesn't look at me and say, I need you to be uncomfortable in this situation. See, me as a God doesn't say, no, you don't get your preference here. Me as a God does not say, you're being lazy and you you need to work. You need to do the stuff I've asked you to do. Me as a God, I think that's bad grammar. I as a God, who cares? Me as a God is fine with my consumerism, my materialism, my coming to worship me and then just sitting there and not really participating. Just whatever I can get is what I want and please do not ask me to give back because that's what I only ask of me. And that's what they did. They left the God with requirements to chase an easy God. They abandoned him, not the other way around. They traded what was vital, he says. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. They traded what was vital and sure and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water, for what was easy and worthless. The fountain of living water never runs out of water. You realize how that works, right? 
But they traded that endless supply, sure supply, the thing they needed in a desert more than anything. And instead, they built cisterns, cracked cisterns, as a matter of fact, because we're really bad at creating our own stuff, especially our own gods. They built a cracked cistern that couldn't hold water. Clay that they smeared stuff on the inside to try to make it waterproof. But it didn't hold water. They gave up on the fountain of life to hold the stuff they thought they wanted. And they lose that too because their cistern is cracked. Will we give our lives for stuff that's going to perish or the thing that doesn't? Twenty-first century church, First Baptist Sulphur, are we not the same? We know Jesus is our purpose and the provider of all we have. We know that. It's really that is why we're here. It's why we came here in the first place anyway we know that we know just like in verses one two three that this is jesus's church not ours not mine not yours we talk about my church our church what we mean is not possession but uh we're a part of it we don't own it, but it's, it's ours in, in the same way this is our community. I don't own the community, but I'm a part of the community. But we don't own it. Like Israel, or Judah in this case, we get comfortable in our preferences, in our laziness, and or our consumerism, and we abandon our purpose. And we don't even miss him when God leaves because we don't notice that he's not here anymore. We we do like Israel, rather Judah, at this point. We've got the temple. Who cares? God's not there. We've got a church building. Who cares if God's not there? We just don't notice he's gone. We've got buildings, we have programs, we have tithing members, we have air conditioning, we have comfort, we have our friends. But then we look around and God is nowhere to be found in the midst of it. They stopped asking, where is the Lord? But it doesn't stop with the church members, the leaders Also, quit asking, where's the Lord? The leaders are either complicit by coddling the comfortable and tickling ears with uh, preferred, easy, meringue messages, or the leaders are run off for raising the clarion call and ringing the alarm for the coming doom. You often have two options. Lie and stay, or... Tell the truth and get run off. And then God removes the lampstand. Revelation, the letters to the churches in in, uh, Turkey. 
Asia Minor. The church is no longer useful. The church is worthless, verse 5. We look around at the stuff that crumbles and the programs that don't work and the bank accounts that run dry and we wonder why God would allow such a thing. Why would he let that happen? He's supposed to be taking care of us. Well, he's not there to offer protection and provision because we left him a long time ago. According to Jeremiah's message. Are churches reforming? Are we reforming? We're trying. Are we at this time before the reform? I hope we are. We should never stop reforming, never stop changing, never stop trying to be better. But like Jeremiah in the time of Josiah, this is our warning from Jeremiah to the church in the 21st century. Some quick math. 2,400 years later, when our world is turned upside down and God seems nowhere near, we moved, He didn't. If we're asking, where is God? Or if we haven't noticed He's gone, we moved, He didn't. The beauty of that is, the message is still being preached. Jeremiah is still preaching his message. And no matter where we are, God is still in the same place. It's, for me, it's the image of Peter walking on the water. The, the, the picture we see is Jesus a distance from the boat. And Peter's saying, if that's you, Lord, let me come to you on the water. Come on, boy. And so he does. He steps out. He's walking on water, but he gets distracted. He, he, he doesn't ask out loud, where is Jesus? But he loses sight of him. And he focuses on everything but Jesus. And he starts to sink. Starts to sink. He starts to sink. We have images and pictures and paintings of him being underwater and the hands coming into the water. And maybe that's how it works. I think it was quicker than that. Maybe Jesus did let his head go underwater. You know dads, especially when you're teaching them to swim, they jump in, you always let their head go underwater. Just for a split second, just, just because, you know, they got to get used to it, right? That's, we, we teach them that way. Maybe, maybe Jesus taught him that way, but since we don't, have an image there, I'm going to say I don't think so. I think when he started to sink, walking on water, feet on top of the water, and those feet started to go under, we don't have an image of Jesus, oh, running across the water, like the Jesus lizard. You know what I'm talking about, right? That's what they call it. It's a little sacrilegious, I know, but that's what they call it. It's a lizard that can run on water because he's got the big feet and so it's not, it's not him running across the water. It says he was there immediately. Right then, when Peter started to sink, Jesus was there to grab him by the hand. That's where Jesus is right now. If we're sinking, if you are sinking in your life, if we as a church are sinking, if the 21st century church today in America is sinking, you know all we have to do is realize we're sinking, cry out, 
and Jesus is there. He's just right there. He never moved. He never moved. We did. So now the call is to move back. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, he's fixed. He's there. God has not moved. He has never moved. He's been calling to you. Maybe you sat in this room who knows how many times. Or at home, wherever you're watching from. And you've heard the gospel message. You've heard me or some other preacher down through the years say, repent of your sins and come to Jesus. And you just have never done it. He has still not moved. He's right there. He is not going to change the call. He's not going to change the method. He's not going to make it easier on you. The message is still the same. But he has not moved. He's still right there waiting to take your hand. But you, not follower of Jesus, you have to cry out, Jesus has saved me. Admit you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You have broken and will continue to break God's law, but you have a gift, eternal life, salvation from that sin, Through Jesus Christ our Lord. All you have to do is cry out, Jesus, save me. And there are other parts of a prayer I have to pray. No, Jesus, save me. You know you're a sinner. Ask Jesus to save you. And take those next steps. Follow him. Oh, that's the hard part, Michael. I know. Because it's all about taking up a cross, leaving your life, following him. It's about being obedient. It's about being baptized and submitting to God and conforming your life to Christ and joining a church, maybe this church. Those things don't save you, but those are the parts of taking up your cross and following Jesus. Laying down the idols you have created that you worship, primarily yourself, and say, from now on, I want to worship Jesus. If your life is in shambles, God has not moved. Jesus is our firm foundation, our rock on which we stand. If you are wondering where God is. He's right there with you. Call out to him. Reach out to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we still, no matter how far we wander, no matter how we get our focus off of you and on the the wind and the waves, the the, or not the storms, the comforts of life. We get complacent, apathetic. You're right there. You don't allow any sort of idols. You don't allow us to make idols out of the storms. 
or out of comfort, and both can get more attention than you. God, may we place our focus squarely on you. May we never get to the point where we are asking, or rather where we are not even asking, where is the Lord? God, I pray we don't get to the point where we look around and actually say, where is the Lord? But I pray, too, that if we ever get to the point where we've strayed, we do realize it and come back. God, we pray you would spare your judgment on us. That we would heed your warning and we would turn. And we would be a church that chases after you, that follows you, a bride that never leaves you, a church that never loses its lampstand, a church that is always following and focused on you. Lord, may that be our declaration today our commitment. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you'd like to follow Jesus this morning, now's your time. Take up your cross and follow him. As a church, will we commit today to look around, to confess, to know that if our world is turned upside down and we look around and God seems nowhere near, we realize we moved, he didn't. And we turn back to him. Let's take a few minutes of worship, contemplation, response. Kirk and Lee are standing in the back. Chelsea will be to the front up here. I'll be over here to the right if you'd like prayer. If you'd like to just come up here and pray. Let's take a few moments. Respond to what God is doing in our hearts as we stand and sing worship together.